Let me invite you to to go to Second Corinthians chapter five. You know, sometimes I kind of um, I, I embark and out of the box thinking, and sometimes it makes all the sense to me. Until my wife checks my notes because I have a grade the English, and she says I, I don't know what you're trying to say at all. So. She's the voice of reason in this. So I, I might be embarking in some out of the box thoughts here in the study. You had to take the PowerPoint. Thank you. Sorry. Oh, you're all right. All right, go into this claimer out already. <laughs> no, she didn't check my my PowerPoint. That's all right. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's going to be fine. Um, but I was, you know, like all of us, we as we're reading, we're challenged in certain things. And there's a couple books that, one I had read a while ago, and one that I've been reading recently that remind me, because Mark had mentioned it, reading it this past week about the higher life. And, and I was reading another one called um, The Life I Always Wanted. And he goes in describing, you know, uh, the constant sense of failure he experiences as a believer, because he hears his expectations, he hears his desires, and you're always falling short of that. The moment that... God saved me, and I trusted him, a number of things happened instantaneously in the twinkling of an eye. What are, what are some of those things that happened at that moment in time? He moved from death to life. You could use all these terms, you know, justification. I know Nathan said I don't want to use all those, you know, theological jargon here. But what what happens at that moment when you trust Christ? So you move from being a child of wrath. You go from being a child of wrath, a child of God. Your adoption process takes place. There's a work that's begun in sanctification. He began a work in you that He will now perform to the end. The work that, that begins at that moment in time that will be completed in Christ. You have new desires. New desires. Scales are removed from your eyes. Scales, you begin seeing what you didn't see before. Filling of the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I think you're made aware of a new purpose that you now realize that Christ has redeemed you for a reason and purpose. So you find purpose. And you have a new purpose in Christ. If you start digging into everything that, that happens at that moment of salvation, the beauty of that transformation, that revelation, that open, that, that blindness that's no longer there, able to see, and a, a new life in Christ. And as you go through that, I want to just look at two verses to begin with. And I'll explain, I'll explain the, the title in, in just a moment. 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? If anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a, a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. Where all things become new. New things have come. There's, there's, in Christ, we're new creatures. Second uh, Peter chapter 1 as well. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life 
and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his by glory and virtue by which have been given us to us exceedingly great and precious promises. He goes through here a reminder and in counseling Mark uses this reference a lot to to help people understand that God's given us everything we need to live the life that is expected of us, that pertains to life and godliness, to the knowledge of him called by glory and virtue. At that moment of salvation, we receive all these blessings and all these promises, all this transfer. There's, there's a new creation. One thing I shared in, in Grace and Granite and talked about the call, God's calling upon man at salvation is a creative call. In other words, he made something out of nothing. He didn't take the old you. He, you're not a fixer-upper. He didn't patch you up. He didn't take something and say, well, you, this is a diamond in the rough. I'm going to make it look, I'm going to make it shine. He took something that did not exist and he created it at that moment. And he brought a new life. He brought in the Spirit of God. And he became a new creature. Now, the, the, the object of what I want to pursue in, in our discussions here, and I'm going to hit a little bit about some definitions and a little bit of, of history because I find it interesting to see where we come today with some of this thinking. But that in the moment of salvation, we talk about the transformation, new creation. We have the indwelling of the Spirit. We have His divine power. And yet, how do you, how do you contrast that with what Paul says in Romans chapter 6? Where he says, well, Romans 6 and 7, he says, uh, you know, the good that I will do, I don't do it. But the evil I will not to do, that I will not to do, that I practice, it is sin that dwells in me. So there, there, there's something particular about the, the Christian wall that at the moment of salvation we receive the, the power, the indwelling. We're told, what were, what were we told about temptation? Does that, you know, you can flee temptation. And yet the reality of our Christian walk is that we're always falling short and we always sense the shortcomings of living the life that is expected of us or at least the life that we're told and that we're described that should be, should be pursued. We're called to walk in a manner, I love this verse, walk in a manner worthy of our calling. But does that take place at salvation? Does, does it take place later? So where, where is that, why do we have such a discrepancy between our transformation, the new life, and the life in Christ, and that frustration, that gray area of where we are and where we would like to, to be? I mean, we're told to walk in truth, we're told to turn away from sin, we're told to flee temptation, and yet is all that, is all that possible? Because most of us in our daily life experience, we experience what, the the, the frustration of not doing that consistently, systematically, the way we would desire to do so. So, this, this question came up, and I looked in one of the books that we were reading with Mark, that Pastor Farrell gave us uh, maybe a year ago now, was just about, talks about the higher life, basically addresses the question of achieving perfection. And in a a separation basically between the moment of justification and sanctification later in your walk in Christ. In other words, we're justified, we're set aside, we'll talk about that a little bit later, and then what does that walk of sanctification look like? And it's interesting to see that in, even in, in Christian history, and I'll address it a little bit, 
some, because the, the, the reasoning was some taught and preached that the believer should attain perfection. They, and honestly, if, if there isn't a certain sense of frustration in your life about where you're at, then there's probably prob- something problematic there too. Now, if, if you're just content with where you're at in life and you don't always seek and desire to, to grow and there's something in the sense that I should be doing something better, and I mean by the sense that you want to be more Christ-like. And if you just say, man, I'm pretty good, I forget about who I am, I forget where I'm at, and you don't have... I think as a believer, we're going to constantly want to be more and more Christ-like until we, obviously, until the Lord returns. But interesting to study the question of sinless perfection and how that has trickled down in some of our own theology and our own mindsets and own churches. And that, what's the proper response to that? Because we're told here we have all the tools, basically we have all the tools to sin, I mean, to, to live... A sinless life, but yet, I mean, except for a very few rare of you, most of us haven't achieved that. <laughs> no, I, I, no. <laughs> I just had a few pictures flash in my mind, but that's not what I did. So let me, I'm going to look at, and it's not, it's not. It's not simplistic enough to say, well, let's just define the word. What does the Bible mean by being complete and perfect? What does it mean in Matthew 5? And we'll look at that this week, maybe next week. You know, what does it mean when Christ says, you know, be perfect like I am perfect? I mean, wow, that's, okay, that's the standard. You know, uh, I'll never make that standard. Because there's another part of this is that it reminds me of whenever you, one thing that's kind of standard with, with teaching is if you put expectations out there that are unachievable, what do you create? create frustration if you sit a standard out there that well this is just not going to happen then you actually de-incentivize someone to actually try to achieve someone because I'm never going to do that anyway I'm never going to please that's why some kids get in constant trouble right the little rowdy kid who wants attention why because he never gets good attention and he's never going to be good enough anyway so he just gives up on trying to be good Pastors' kids are notoriously that way because the standard that's expected of them is constantly be good you got to be just right now it worked well with Mark, but So you, you set this standard, and there comes a point in the life of that child that says, forget it, I, I can't meet that standard. I remember Tim White giving that example of his child. He says, why do we do this? He says, my, my little boy was Zach. He's not little anymore, but Zach was putting the basket in the hoop, right? The little child hoop. But as soon as he's able to make it, what do you do? Raise a hoop. You just you always kind of put that goal a little bit out of reach, and ultimately what you do is you you discourage. So how can, how can the believer one stay encouraged? What's really expected of him? Because we'll see in the debate between Charles Stanley. I mean uh, Charles Stanley. I know that's, that's a Freudian <laughs> from this morning. Between John and Charles Wesley, the debate between the two. Saying, if you push profession, you're going to discourage people from even trying to walk holy because you're setting expectations that they'll never meet. So how do you how do you not live as a believer in constant frustration, not reaching perfection, and yet walking in a way that is worthy of of the calling? Two things I want to just look at first is the word that's being used for for perfect in the Old Testament. We see the first mention of perfect with with Noah talks about, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a, was a just man, perfect 
in his generations, Noah walked with God. So definition, it's an adjective. And the only reason I put that there is as a reminder because he's always going to disqualify now. So he's a perfect man, a complete man, as you used to talk about, without blemish, complete, or, or whole. Uh, Genesis 17. And I, I just want to show a little bit, when you read through Scripture, here are the Hebrew words that are used to describe someone that is... That is perfect. Genesis 17 talks about Abraham was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abraham, said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be be blameless. So we'll see the word perfect being used. We'll see the word blameless being used. In Exodus, we'll we'll see the word without blemish. Most of the time with the sacrifices, we talk about the sacrifices, you had to use uh, uh, an animal without blemish. That's an animal that is perfect, same word being used there as well. Leviticus, uh, a little different passage, I don't have it here. Uh, it talks about taking the sacrifice, uh, its fat and the whole fat, so the, the completeness, the perfect, uh, without blemish, uh, blameless are, are terms that are used in, in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the term is a little bit different, uh, but used in the same way. The ones we're more familiar with basically is the word uh, finished, we're wanting nothing. Uh, perfect or complete are the terms that we see used, the, the definition of the word in the New Testament. Romans chapter 12, he says, um, They may prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What is the complete, wanting nothing, uh, finished will of God? 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6 says, We speak wisdom among those who are mature. So in other places, it's translated as, as being mature. So, but what, what, what's a mature believer look like then? Is it one that is complete? Is it one that is perfect? It is one that has gained victory over sin, all sin, 80% sin, 50% sin? I mean, what, when do you achieve that, that level of, of completeness and, and maturity? talks about the comparison and contrast of 1 Corinthians 14 uh, between... i got more verses here, but 1 Corinthians 14 talks about... Uh, babes and understanding be be mature, and then the last one, First John four eighteen, said there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in in love. So the 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 definition and the term being used systematically in scripture, some translated mature, sometimes translated blemish or blameless, without blemish, to describe. What the term that we're using for for perfection? So, let me start with a couple of questions. One, we as believers des- desire and pursue Christ-like behavior. Some have made perfection their goal. Now, the issue today, the issue in the study, is not just to discuss the, na- the nature of perfection and sinless perfection and Christian perfection. But in their understanding of what it means to have perfection, they've, they've defined justification in a certain way, and they've defined sanctification in a certain way, and that spills over into our own understanding of what sanctification means and what God expects of us. So it's going to, if you're patient, which means probably next week, we'll, we'll, we'll trickle down to that. But the first thing is, first of all, can a believer be perfect, and can a believer be, be blameless? I mean, if every temptation was given to this common man, but we're given the power to flee it, can, can, a, can a believer 
be perfect and blameless. If not, why not? I, I think that one sense you are, if you're in Christ, you're viewed by God as perfect and complete and whole in Him, positionally, but you know, practically speaking, you're not yet what you will be. So you're saying, but, let's be pragmatic, it's not going to happen. Right. Yeah, well, <laughs> I just try it. Not the glory. I don't. You gotta make sense. A lot of the scriptures that do tell us to be perfect, and that, you know, they, there's a standard there. That's Christ. He's the standard. But, but you have to. The answer is yes and no. I guess in some ways. Well, those examples of Noah and Abraham, they were not perfect people. Right. First thing Noah does, he gets off the ark. Right. Gets drunk. Yeah. Right. And sends back in the world immediately. So he defined right. So that. Right, so that illustration is used for a man who actually was not was perfect. not perfect. That's the way we might understand. From a, from a you know legalist perspective, uh, you know these would not be those men. Uh, Abraham obviously uh, lied about his wife on a couple occasions. Other things, right? He tried to go around God by getting another heir. You see all the tensions that that's caused even in the world today uh, between the different children of Abraham. But, um, you know, there's, there's consequences for those things that occur. But um, they're mentioned in Hebrews as being the champions of faith in, in uh, chapter 11. So I think that's key, that, that having that faith is what, what justifies you. And it's kind of that, I'm trying to, to put a wedge, I'm trying to, to stick my foot in that gap. That, that Nathan described by saying that, meaning yes and no. What does that mean, yes and no? What, what, are, what expectations do I have for myself, then? and how do I respond to sin, then? Did, you know, and how do I uh, even encourage my children, then, to, to do so? And, you're, and so accurately describing the fact that even when that term is being used in Scripture, he's not using it to describe sinless men uh, as well. So what can I and what should I expect or be, what can be expected of a believer? To be making every effort and to be, you know, in your sanctification, um, to obey and to um, trust God. So to make every effort toward your sanctification. Right. Because Trusting. It's, it's like, you know, in salvation, it's God. In sanctification, God works with us. He's empowered us. Right. But we still have to do things. We still have to obey. We still have to uh, make the effort. One person emphasized the fact that there's a difference between trying and trusting, meaning trusting God in that sanctification process as opposed to redoubling down with the effort. You know, so it's kind of like the New Year's resolution, right? That New Year's. That statement is something that kind of leans towards antinomianism because instead of making an effort they go okay God fix me and there's you know I'm going to pray and God's going to you know change my mind he's going to you know or whatever we don't want to do or don't feel like doing we just trust God to to do that well, that's not antinomianism antinomianism is saying I don't even need to uh, change my behavior at all Right. Just continue with but that. some people go That's to that know. extent with yeah. that, like a higher uh, life. Right. What's his name? Like, but I think like surrendering God. to God and saying, "Change me." That's a good thing. That's not. That's not bad. That that's, part is yeah. That's but the I start. Mean, that's the beginning. But their thinking is, I don't have to do anything. I just have to sit here, and God's going to fix me. Right. Hmm. 
Well, that's that's the struggle with that with that question, because it pulls it, it creates that tension between, well, do I you know is it my own efforts? So, like the New Year's resolution on Monday, I'm going to redouble efforts this week. And this week, I'm going to get up not five o'clock. I'm going to get up four thirty. I'm not going to spend twenty minutes in Word. I'm going to spend an hour in Word. And and now I'm going to. And then a week later or two weeks later, I'm defeated again because I've fallen short of those goals again. And, and so I recommit. So it's, it's, that, it's that certainly that, that struggle between that question and where, where does the believer um, work towards a sanctification and what does that look like? So, so those efforts are on your own, what you just talked about. I'm, I'm trying to get up earlier. I'm trying to study more on my own. Those are on your own. If you're doing that apart from God's Spirit... Which is empowering you. But the other, but the yeah. other end of that is, I'm just going to wake up and pray. I'm not going to, you know, I'm just going to kind of organically hope that I, you know, what I'm saying the, the the two extremes of that. Yeah, but that's not antinomianism. Antinomianism would be, I don't have to change my behavior at all. Okay. I can be as sinful as I want. Right. Now that's a different. Right. Absolutely. So what what do these what do these views? How do they impact our our Christian Christian walk? You know, the student's not better than the teacher. You know, I don't walk in and start thinking, oh, and I don't even mind if I fail because I'm acknowledging right. that I know I have a need. I'm walking in with the need. So, so like like you were saying, like, it's the, and then the, the, the part of it is the faithfulness. So, so if you're acknowledging that I need help, and now you can be blameless by, by one sense, but they say, well, I'm doing everything you asked me to do. I know I'm not perfect, that's why I came. You know what I'm saying? But, but I also have to be obedient, and I have to learn. If I fall short, obviously I have to learn. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. I mean, it's... How, how we view that question is going to determine how we, we attempt to do our Christian walk. Meaning you might have a, a believer fall into this certain form of fatalism. Basically, well, you can't, you know... Sin is sin, all sin's the same, and you know we're all we're all equal. And what I mean by that is they, they say that in a way of basically justifying sinful behavior, and God's going to forgive me. And on the one hand, they, they they don't even attempt to be, they don't even put their efforts towards sanctification, uh, and that impacts the way they live. And others can have this sinless perfection 
view, and they get discouraged because they're constantly defeated, or they're not who they want to be in Christ. And when the process is one of repentance, confession, and then uh, correcting. Let me, let me give a little bit of, of history, and for those of you who don't enjoy history, don't check out on me right away. Uh, again, what I want to do is, what I found interesting is how this, this aspect of history trickled down into how we view justification and sanctification. And um, so I found it interesting in that regard. And it, it goes back here primarily to, and the book that we were talking about addressed some of this, certainly, goes back to John and Charles Wesley as young men, uh, known today, of course, for the uh, known today as Methodist, because they methodically set about fulfilling the commands of Scripture. They were, they were brothers that didn't establish, set out to establish a church, but the Wesleyans, Methodists, are their offspring. They both wrote and they both preached, uh, so they were both preachers and songwriters. And they both were encouraged in their search for holiness, in the search for the Christian wall. They were encouraged to pursue perfection. We're talking about late uh, 17, and then the movement continued later on, but in the 1700s, and moved, continued on to the Great Awakenings. Moved toward, they, were, they were encouraged to pursue perfection. They went to America in 1735. They were influenced by the Moravians and their pursuit of holiness. And again, a lot of this is very honorable. There's this pursuit of holiness. There's pursuit of being Christ-like. But they also began to develop this understanding of pursuing perfection and what that looks like. They were, came close to another man called Peter Bowler who emphasized that believers needed to be wakened to spiritual consciousness or they would remain in sin. So understand what they're beginning to do here. They began to, they began to distinguish the moment of salvation with another spiritual awakening that was needed in the life of the believers so they become spiritual. And that's where there started being, in my view, a divide between what you receive in Christ at salvation and searching for another spiritual experience later that makes you spiritual or that, that takes you towards more of a spiritual perfection. And that's where that dichotomy started to, to develop. We see in some of the writing of their songs that they started talking about perfection is a shining way. So they started uh, interpreting that in, in their music and in their preaching. Christian perfection was the cleansing of the soul from all sin. As God sanctified believers, they experienced full restoration in the divine image and complete freedom from evil. So they, 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 they walked into... Out of a desire for holiness, out of a desire for godliness, out of a desire for Christ-likeness, were encouraged to, what they felt was a natural step, is to per- pursue perfection. To the point where perfection was attainable, in their view. But, to attain perfection, you had to seek a separate spiritual experience that would bring that about. Does that make sense? So now you're looking for another consecration moment that brings in the Spirit of God, so you pray for, you know, and it developed into other... Into other areas. That they call it a second work of grace. Yes, so, second, second work of grace, a second blessing. And so it really morphed into the Christian seeking a second spiritual experience than the one he had at salvation. So, what's all this going to lead to? It's going to lead to, honestly, a lot of what we've also experienced in our churches where we 
with a with a renewed dedication, a renewed spiritual commitment, and and, and led towards a a separation between the believer who just got saved and the believer who's actually committed. It created a separation between he's a Christian but he's a disciple. He's 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 saved, but he's really following Christ. And they started making a separation between two types of, of believers that Scripture did not, I don't believe, intended to be to, to be there. As you walk through the next in the next um, number two here from Charles Wesley to today, just interesting to see. Even between John and Charles, the two brothers did not agree on exactly what that meant. John felt like that you could be free from all sin, all voluntary sin, not involuntary sin. Charles felt like he could be free from all voluntary and involuntary sin. So even between two brothers, they, you know, he said, well, you, could, you could be free from all voluntary sin, which means you, you could not consciously sin. But... This other sin, because of your sin nature, that you're just going to do, you just won't know about. And, and Charles went to the other side. No, you could, you could be free from, from all of that. And it's interesting what John says to his brother. Make sure. Let's watch my time a little bit here. What John says to his brother, he tells Charles that he has a too high view of God. Or a too high view of the spiritual search. He says, I want you to be all in love. This is John talking to Charles. This is the perfection I believe and teach. And this is perfection is consistent with a thousand nervous disorders. This is what he calls involuntary sins. He said, my judgment is that to overdo is to undo. What does he mean by that? To overdo is to undo. Which means if you, over, if you overdo and you, you emphasize that you could, be, you could be sinless from all voluntary sin, all involuntary sin, all what he calls nervous disorders, which means all these uh, sinless, I mean sinful, carnal. If you, if you teach that you can do all that, you're actually going to undo the real desire and pursuit for holiness because you're going to undo it over here by, by going to this other, this other extreme. He says to overdo is to undo, and that's to set perfection too high, so high as no man that ever heard or read or, or attained is the most effectual way of driving it out of the world. So John is challenging Charles by saying, you're going too far with this. Even though they both start out by saying the pursuit of perfection is possible, John made a distinction that Charles didn't make, and it led to, to where it did. And then he says this to, f- to finish up. He says, to set perfection so high is effectually to, to renounce it. Don't expect men without spot or, or blemish. So we see between these two men, these two brothers, and they, I'm going to go just, we've got five more minutes, seven more minutes here. We're going to, we're going to see a little bit more history, how it comes, comes all the way down to us. But where they began searching, because why? I think they came to the practical reality, maybe, of saying, well, perfection is, is, is possible, but clearly it's not visible. So we must be seeking another spiritual experience to to experience that so that we can attain that. And if you haven't had the second spiritual experience, then you're not, you can't achieve perfection and, and, and complete holiness. So they began to, to have a tug of war between, between these, these two issues. It's interesting to see uh, a little bit later on, so I just put down here a couple other references. Phoebe Palmer, a, an evangelist, instrumental in the holiness movement, 
she suggests, and this is where the Methodist, she's a Methodist evangelist, so she's the offspring. And like many of the times is the case, you know, John and Charles made their case here. The next person takes it a little further, and their movement took it even, even further. And so uh, Phoebe Palmer, this evangelist, Methodist evangelist, she suggests that one must fully surrender oneself on the altar as Christ is the altar, and so does the altar sanctify our offering. When you entirely consecrate yourself, you are instantly sanctified. So we're, look, at, look what she's saying. When you entirely consecrate yourself, you are instantly sanctified. This altar theology proposes a shorter way to holiness. She's suggesting that you can attain this, this holiness by what? By bringing your, your offering to the altar and consecrating that to the Lord. And in essence, looking for this other spiritual experience that will put you on a path to spiritual <clears throat> perfection. Of course, we've inherited a lot of that through the awakenings, through revivals, and the altar calls are actually an inheritance of that. Does it mean that all altar calls are bad? Of course not. That's not what it means. What it means is that it was, it was historically sought for people to come and concentrate their life and seek a higher, perfect, sinless, perfected Christianity. And the shortcut to that is you could live on Monday, come to church on Monday, live the life you want during the week, and come to the altar on Sunday and offer your offering and consecrate your life to God and, and rededicate, reconcentrate. Now, reconcentrate, reconsecrate. Now, I'm not, you know, sometimes the history of things doesn't lead to exactly what we're practicing today. It's kind of like saying Christmas tree is evil because they were, you know, idols and, and worship. I don't worship my Christmas tree, you know, but. History, nevertheless, shows us why some of the things we have today are there and, and the fallacy that it created. Because what the fallacy that it's created, we'll see next week, is that it created the idea in believers that you can have a normal believer and a spiritual believer. You can have this justified believer and you can have the consecrated believer. You can have the believer that just believes and you have the disciple. And so now you're looking for this other spiritual experience that actually was acquired at the moment of salvation, but we're looking for something uh, in addition to that, Charles Finney and others taught beyond that that Christians should experience at a point in time after becoming a believer uh, this spiritual baptism and, and awakening. Of course, the Pentecostal movement brought some of that in as well, uh, seeking conversion, sanctification, spirit baptism, you know, where they created different stages. And the reason why I put McCarthy here because McCarthy kind of hit that in his, uh, the gospel according to, in the book of Matthew, right? I mean, his, his uh, commentary on, on Matthew, uh, the gospel according to Jesus, and the book came out in 1988. I still remember that book coming out because it created a lot of stir even then. Um, I was raising, I was raising support to go to mission field in, in the mid-90s, and I had pastors ask me what my view was on MacArthur because of his book. And I got it by, I got it by the, I got it by the questioning. I didn't like they, they were looking for the negative, you know. And you learned that really quickly as a missionary. You learn who likes drums, who doesn't. You like, yeah. Who's MacArthur? Hey, man, brother, come on in. So, because MacArthur in his book argued what? The point of of the book was to. He argues that the gospel teaches that one must repent to be saved and that good works and continuing believing in Jesus are necessary fruit of saving faith, which means you can't separate coming to Christ and the fruit evidence of salvation. 
So the pushback he got from that goes back to this higher life or higher spiritual approach to the issue and the pushback he got because some were contending, well, he was pushing back against all these things, but they were pushing back on him for contending that the only condition for salvation is intellectual believing, and the other elements, such as repentance, surrender, were heretical. So the pushback he got was, was a, a fruit of our own history, meaning, no, there's, there's salvation, which is the intellectual salvation, which is why you can have a prayer of salvation. Because the prayer of salvation is what? Is it intellectual? Say these words after me. Repeat these words after me. Now, can people, have people gotten saved? Of course. It's, it's not the methodology that got them saved. But what I'm saying is that it's a fruit of this idea that it's just a matter of believing this. And we'll address the living for Christ afterwards. You can just accept this reality, this truth about who Christ is. But we'll talk about what it means for him to be Lord of your life and be a disciple. That's a separate question and a separate issue. And sanctification is separate from justification, and it's not. And history has caused us to, and that's why we, we can accept believers who live kind of in different lives to Christianity. Well, well they're, they're Christians, but they're showing no evidence of it. They're showing no desire for it. They're showing no fruit of it. And there's, we, we've accepted that. To a certain extent. And, and so MacArthur got pushed back only because of the premise that he has to be Lord. He's got to be Savior and Lord of your life. He can't be just one of, of the two. So Ryrie's response to that as well. Ryrie's main argument is that God requires only that people believe in Jesus Christ for him to be saved. Christians may live a life of carnality. Yeah. So and then... Then there's this dedication and commitment. So I'm going to end here because our, our, our time is up. And next week what I want to talk about was, is unfold a couple of passages that talk about natural man, carnal man, spiritual man, and then go through the justification and sanctification issue and when those things take place. But the bottom line is, is this for today. We, I, I inherited this from my... I was raised in that environment where you sought a certain spiritual experience. And coming to the altar was part of that process. I don't think coming, having altar calls is a bad thing. Uh, and I remember as a young man coming to the altar and, and confessing and repenting at the altar. So those are not bad elements. The part of the fruit of the problem is that some of this was created with the sense that you can come in as a believer and just believe. And you search another spiritual experience later to make you that perfected, perfect, holy believer. And those two should have never been separated. You come to Christ. As you come to Christ, he is Lord and Savior of your life. And the moment of justification, we'll explain that next week a little bit more what that means, and sanctification all begin right there at the foot of the cross at salvation. Sure. So, yeah. No, that's why I want to Go ahead. Well, go ahead. No, I was going to say that the problem with uh, Christian perfectionism or entire sanctification as a former elder in the church of Nazarene, um, is that there's a there's a higher work of God and through an experience that you're waiting on that's greater than the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ on the cross. That's the problem. That's the problem. Because yeah, I, I even think like it says he who was he that begun to do the work of God. And I'm thinking these other guys did they take the book of James out of their I mean, like, I'm right. so clear. I mean, 
I don't get where these guys are even. Doesn't look for experience. It's that I can give them more than what Christ gave them, which is blasphemous. Well, it, it originates with with the <laughs> desire to pursue holiness. So at the heart of the original desire is a desire to be more holy. So you constantly ridicate, you know, so you want to recommit to that. But it is split off into a erroneous teaching on where that takes place. And today, we've created today, the church inherited today a generation of believers who are molar, our molar is called nominal Christians because they're there in name only and not in the fervor and strength of, of godliness. So we'll talk about some of that. I told you it was going to be a little bit out of the box. So I don't know. I don't think I got it back in the box there. It's great for the Nathan, can you close in prayer for us, please? Thank you, Father, for the, making uh, your word known to us. And, uh, Lord, uh, the pursuit of holiness is something that uh, I think uh, every true believer in here desires and uh, longs for. Uh, we just pray that you'll help us to pursue that along your lines, Lord, knowing that your grace is so necessary. And we walk this walk of sanctification by faith and trust in Christ. And we just ask, Lord, that you would just help us now as we... Um, pursue these things, not to, not to look for an experience that will just catapult us forward, but Lord, that we'll learn that uh, it is you who works in us, both to will and to do your good pleasure. You're working in us as we work along cooperatively with you, and pray the Lord you will uh, sustain us and carry us forward by your grace into the day which we will be made fully glorified and perfect in reality in heaven. We thank you for this in Christ, and we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. Amen.